Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Great to, uh, to be able to open up Philippians chapter 2 with you this morning. A couple of additional things as we get going. Number one, uh, kids, if you don't have your sermon notes, it's a green sheet, and we started putting out new ones last week. And so if you didn't get one as you came in, there's going to be some at the back. I, I received just oodles and oodles of them last week, and I loved reading through them. So they, they, they were all my favorites uh, for different reasons. But I love it. You know, something that one kid wrote down that they learned was there is nowhere that God cannot work in me. That's a good take on Someone wrote, what kind of garden do you want to grow? Kind of harking back to some of what we talked about in working out our salvation, letting God work in us to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. That was last week. So kids, if you had your sermon notes, your, your words for this morning are in your bulletin. Uh, they are the words, um, I didn't write them down in my notes, they're the words grumbling or grumble works. Or if I say grumble, that works too. If you want to keep track of how many times I say the word grumbling, that'd be a, a good word to go. The other word is shine or shining. I don't think I will say shine because that would be bad English. Uh, but I will probably say shine or shine most of the morning. So keep track of those words. And, uh, and remind me how many times I say them. Uh, you guys did a great, great job. Um, I'll do that in a minute. Um, really quickly also, I found out late last night, I was here to get some stuff ready, that Twyla DeWitt was going in for um, some sort of heart surgery this morning. So I wanted to make sure that I shared that with you. I have permission to share that. Her granddaughter Sarah let me know that. All Sarah said was that um, they're pretty sure it's in her left heart valve. Uh, they might be doing a stent or catheter, but she goes in this morning. So if you'd be in prayer, if you know Twyla, um, you know, pray for her. If you don't know Twyla, pray for her and for her family as they experience the stress that I'm sure this, this morning could bring. We'll pray for her in just a moment. But before we do that, um, I would like to have Ephraim come up here. I need your help for a minute. Um, this is for later in the sermon. So, Ephraim, would you hand one of those out for a kid? I need, I need a, a, a volunteer over here. Can I kid? Yeah, Luke, come on. Come on up, bud. No? Okay. Someone else. You can be an adult. Then have a big kid. Do you want to All right. Awesome. These are glow sticks, okay? And they have the connector on them. You can crack them if you want. And it will make sense why we're doing that later. So, Jordan, take that and make sure every kid on this side of the auditorium has one, okay? Can you do that for me? Ephraim, same thing on that side. All right. Our passage for today, I just cracked that one. Our passage for today comes on the heels of last week's message. So, if you remember last week, Philippians chapter 2, if you're not in your Bibles there, you may go. Beginning in verse 12, says this. So then, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out His good purpose. All right, we talked about that last week. Here's where we pick up today, in verse 14, chapter 2 of the book of Philippians. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, in a warped and crooked generation in which you shine like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. 
Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should be glad and rejoice with me. That's where we're going to be today. So let's pray right now and we'll continue. Lord, we pray for Twyla, we pray for her family this morning, that the peace of God that passes all understanding would guard her heart and her mind in Christ Jesus. And God, we ask for wisdom for each physician and each, each nurse that come to, um, come to serve her, come to take care of her. And God, we ask that she would be glorified in her life. We pray now, Lord, that the words of the scripture would take deep root inside of our hearts. That we might learn in order to live by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Together we say, Amen. Fantastic. Kids, I hope you all have a proposed for later. Alright, so we are talking this morning, kind of uh, continuing our conversation from last week. When I was a kid, you may have sung this song, This Little Light of Mine. You guys know it. Fantastic. You guys want to sing it this morning? Alright, there's great joy there. <laughs> We won't. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. I think I got the right number. Then we would sing, hide it under a bushel. Yes, you know it. Fantastic. Okay, I'm not the only one. We are talking this morning about how we shine like stars in the sky. Or shining like lights in the world. Uh, they're, they're both, it's translated both ways, depending on the translation. And Paul's going to address ways in which we allow the light of Christ to shine through us. And he's specifically going to talk to the Philippians about ways in which they hide God's light from shining in their life. These, these are believers. They have the light of Christ in them. And he's going to address some ways in which they act that hinder God shining through them. And that's what we're going to look at today. Our passage this morning focuses on practical action. And it comes on the heels of working out our salvation. This is a way that Paul wants them to practically work out their salvation and allowing God to work in them, his perfect and effective will. And so Paul is, is going to encourage them, hey, let your light shine. Don't hinder the light. And even as we start right now, I want you to ask yourself the question, how does my light shine? Does it shine unhindered or does it shine bright? For the glory of God. Alright? That's where we're going. As we study this morning, um, I want to focus our thoughts upon some key words that Paul is going to use to instruct these Philippians believers. They're applying the gospel to their life, and the specific part where Paul wants to apply the gospel is to their speech. Now, we could go all over Scripture. We could go, the, the, the book of James is perhaps the most blunt, um, but we could go all over scripture to find out how our, how our speech affects the way in which our light shines. But Paul's going to say something to them here. And he says, he says, do all things without grumbling or arguing. And so the first word I want to highlight is the word do. This is a present active imperative. All right. There's, there's no, um, there's no like, I hope you do this. There's no, I really wish that you would know it's do, do this. It's an imperative. And he's speaking 
to the community at large. Now, of course, as I, as I said last week, where there is community application, there's also personal application, which will be made evident as we, as we talk. Um, but two things highlighting the word do. Number one, it highlights practical action. This is practical action that they can be involved in and that they should be involved in. And second, it, it's an active command for the community. It's not passive. It doesn't give some person an out. For every person in the community at Philippi, he says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. All right? For everyone. Now, the word do here is modified by another significant word, and it's the word, um, it's the word which means everything or all things. Now, in Greek, word order is different. Uh, if you ever go to learn Greek, I applaud you if you do, uh, you'll find out that your subject doesn't always come at the beginning of the sentence. Sometimes your verb is in a weird place and your direct object, where is it? You find it, you know? And, and in Greek, you figure out what is what, you know, what's a subject by how the word ends. They've got different endings on it. You don't need to worry about that. But here's what I want you to know. Oftentimes, what biblical writers will do is they will use different techniques to highlight their emphasis. So, for example, one technique that is used a lot in scripture is repetition. If you see a word multiple times, they're wanting to draw your attention to something that they really want to talk about. Another way in which they highlight is word placement. And so, one of the common things that happens, uh, and I learned this in, in you know, the first two weeks of Greek one, I think, was that um, a phrase can be started by a specific word in order to emphasize the importance of that word. And so in the Greek here, it literally says, all things do. Okay? All things comes before the actual verb. So all things, not some things, not just the things you like, not just the things you don't like. All things, everything do. It's as if Paul wanted to say, I know that you'd like to maybe make an exception here and here and here, but I don't want you to. In all things, do everything without, all things do without grumbling or complaining, would be the actual, the actual rendering there. And so stop and think about the scope of the word all things or everything. What comprises that in your life? Right? Simple answer is all things, but get specific for you. What does that mean? What are the things where you find temptation to grumble and complain? That's a part of all things. Earlier this week, I posted the following question to my Facebook page. I made the statement, there are such great biblical pictures behind this packed phrase. I'm curious, where do you find the most temptation to grumble and argue? And some brave, brave souls were, were willing to speak. Uh, some from here, some from my family, some from different places in the United States. And so one of the ones that came up was going to work full time. All right? That's an opportunity, temptation to grumble. Maybe it's because it's not your dream job. Maybe it's because there's struggle at work. Who knows? Work. Um, several people, and I identified myself with this, it's easy to grumble and complain when it comes to government or the cultural condition of our world and how we interact with that. All right? There's enough grumbling going on in all that process. We sometimes like to add our own grumbling to it. Um, another person said, inconveniences in my life. 
Someone said tasks around the home. So, so, someone said bad drivers. <laughs> and uh, I rode in the car with a dear brother several, several years ago, and I was amazed at how such a godly man became frustrated by someone who was going the speed limit. <laughs> Small things in life. Uh, bad drivers, but I get it. I get it in many ways. Situations, someone else said, where we feel the need to be right or have things done our way. Can you identify with that? I, I can. Someone mentioned kids arguing and complaining, and what I love about what they said was that it often begins a cycle, continues throughout the day. And I love that because that is often the case with grumbling. Grumbling in one person's life that it bleeds over to another person's life can quickly have this effect where all of a sudden you've affected the the temperature of your family, you've affected the temperature of your workplace, you've affected the temperature of your church, and, and how you respond simply by grumbling and arguing. Words matter. Paul knows words matter, and he'll actually continue to address this, because this all has to do with the cultural context of living in unity with one another. So, what is it for you? Where do you find the most temptation to grumble or to argue? Paul begins his command with the word, all things do without grumbling or arguing, because he knows how easy it is for our hearts to begin a cycle that will affect how we shine the light of Christ in our lives. Now, to help you understand the word grumbling better, we've got some Greek for today. Uh, this is a very, very fun word that kids, I think, you enjoy saying. It is the word gogusmon. Can you say that? Gogusmon. Very good. Let's try that. Gogusmon. Yeah, and I like to think of this, this word as gogusmon. It's kind of got this, like, just kind of getting all work about something. It means, literally, grumbling, complaining, or behind-the-scenes talk. It's the conversation that you don't have directly with a spouse, a kid, or a coworker, but rather you talk about them to this person and that person, so on and so forth. It's, it's when you, instead of dealing with things in a biblical, healthy manner, you choose to go, I love it. It's a very, very appropriate word. And it describes a basic personal attitude and conduct of a person in their situation. It always signifies ungodly attitudes. And it's more than just uh, being disappointed over an unfulfilled promise. It's, it's a, it reflects a spirit of just ungodliness because you're not grateful for God's goodness in your life. There's a rich biblical history to this word. Uh, it's unfortunate that we have such a rich history to it, um, but we're going to look at that. So if you would turn in your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 16. The primary section, uh, or the primary location for where this word is used deals directly with Israel in their grumbling in the wilderness. All right? Wait for a moment while you get there. Now, before Exodus chapter 16, we have Exodus 15. Not terribly um, surprising there. But in Exodus 15, we hear this song that Moses writes to extol the greatness of God. 
And they have just come from Exodus chapter 3, where, where the Israelites have cried out. God has heard their cry. God sends Moses to be their deliverer, the one who takes them up out of Egypt. They go through this whole plague thing. God shows his power over Pharaoh. They are finally um, led out of Egypt under a strong, mighty hand arm of God. And they come to the Red Sea, or the Sea of Reeds, is, is the way it is in the Hebrew there. And as they're camped by the Sea of Reeds, they look one direction, and there's water, and they look the other direction, and there's, whoa, all of Pharaoh's army coming after us. And so God does a miraculous thing. He parts the waters. The Israelites walk through. After they get to the other side, Pharaoh and his whole army collapse under the weight of the water. God wins. And God is proclaimed as king. In fact, in Exodus chapter 15 is the first place where it says, the Lord reigns forever and ever. Which is a phrase that denotes God's kingship over Israel. And so we come to the end of chapter 15 and into chapter 16, right on the heels of experiencing this great redemption. Right on the heels of, um, of them seeing how God has power over everything. And even singing a song to extol the Lord, it says in chapter 15, verse 24, the people grumbled to Moses because the water was bitter. And so God provides water. And so we come to Exodus chapter 16. And I want you to read and just kind of notice how many times the word grumbling pops up here. Um, 16, verse 2, says the entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses. Moving down a couple of verses to verse 6. It says, So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, This evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you will see the Lord's glory because he's heard your grumbling. Remember, grumbling is not a good thing here. He's heard your grumbling about him. For who are we that you complain about us? Moses continued, verse 8. The Lord will give you meat to eat this evening and more than enough bread in the morning, for he has heard the grumbling that you are raising against him. Who are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Verse 9. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard you. You're grumbling, you're complaining. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will eat bread until you are full. Then you will know that I am Yahweh your God. Now, question for you. To whom did Israel complain? They complained directly to Moses and Aaron. And yet, they didn't complain directly to Moses and Aaron. They kind of complained to them. But really, their complaint and their affront was against God. Ultimately, Israel doubted God's ability to lead, to guide, and to provide for them in their journey to the Promised Land. They doubted God's promises. And before we become too critical of them, how many times have we seen God work? Begin with your salvation, which was God's redemptive initiative. How many times have you seen God work? Have I seen God work? And yet, time after time, we grumble, and it shows an ungrateful, ungodly attitude to the God who has saved us and the God who preserves us even here this day in the life and earth. 
So before we get too down on the Israelites, we have to consider our own life. Where in your life today do you doubt God's perfect provision? Where do you doubt God's perfect provision for your life? And where has that doubt led to grumbling? I'm not talking about struggle. I think all of us in some way, shape, or form, we struggle with knowing how and learning how to trust God and to live by His grace. But an attitude that persistently, persistently complains to and about God is not healthy, is not what God wants. Interestingly enough, this attitude of grumbling comes up later in the scripture, and it's why so many of the Israelites of that generation did not go forth into the promised land. It has correlations there. Alright? So, where does your grumbling affect the attitudes of others? Church? Work? Home? Where has grumbling taken root in your life? Paul is going to remind the Philippians even in the next couple chapters, that God's provision is perfect. They'll say in chapter 4, My God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory. He's going to encourage them to continue to rejoice in the situation that God has them in because God is there and God is present and God is sufficient to provide all that they need. Now, grumbling, you've got an idea of that. Here's the next word. It's dialogismo. There should be an alpha after the eye-looking thing. Dialogismo. Could you say that with me? Dialogismo. Very good. Your Greek is coming along very well. Graduate teaching the next level soon. Here's what this means. It means arguing, verbal exchange that takes place when conflicting ideas are expressed. Dispute or argument. All right? Arguing is a natural result from grumbling. And it's a word that describes useless and sometimes ill-natured disputing, doubting. Disputing and doubting. In other words, it's not like having a difference of opinion and talking that out in a godly way. There's a way to do that. It's something that goes beyond that. It's this conflict that takes place and oftentimes it's pointless. You just kind of want to argue in order to win. <laughs> Have you ever been there? Um, I think that marks a lot of my early childhood because my brother is six uh, years younger than me and I always had to come out on top. You know, my big brother had to win that argument if only for the sake of winning the argument. Dialogismo, arguing, verbal exchange that takes place when conflicting ideas are expressed, a dispute, or an argument. The context of Paul's statement has to do with unity in the gospel. And one of the things I think that's happened is people have, instead of lowering themselves, as early in Philippians chapter 2 talks about, they've instead raised their, their selves and their opinion of themselves more highly than they ought. And Jesus actually confronts this too. Paul's not the only one to, to discuss this. Jesus, in Luke chapter 9, it says, An argument arose among them, them being the disciples, as to which of them was the greatest. And it says, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, I believe the Matthew parallel says, knowing the evil that was within their hearts, he took a child and put him by his side and he begins to explain to them how they should live in light of the gospel. 
right? Paul is saying, don't argue in such a way to make yourself better, bigger, or stronger than someone else. Rather, serve one another, he has already said, by expressing your life or living your life as Christ Jesus lived his. Lowering himself to raise others up. Alright? So, Jesus knew in that passage that the evil inclination of man to argue in such a way as to be seen as better than or more important than others. Arguing causes disunity. And it mars people's perception of God. Paul's going to talk about what it means to shine because he cares about how God is portrayed. He recognizes that as they argue, the way people see God changes. It's not that God changes. God's character remains intact. God's goodness remains intact. God's faithfulness remains intact. His justice remains intact. But the way he is portrayed gives people around the Philippian believers a different view of God than what they should have. Okay? So, um, do things without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without blemish. To become, here, here's another great verb. So we have the verb do, we have the verb become. That you may be or become blameless and innocent. Um, now, I want to make it very clear. I am not saying that as you don't grumble and complain, that makes you blameless and innocent. Okay, this comes on the heels of last week's conversation. You do not, you do not earn your salvation. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. But we are called to work out the effects of our salvation in our lives. Letting God work his power through us. Living in our identity as God's children. So blameless here does not mean sinless. It refers to a quality of life that hears the word of God and obeys. Alright? Pure here is a great word. And it means unmixed or untainted. It's actually a word that is used of metals. Um, like if you have gold or something like that. That are not mixed with an alloy. You know exactly what you're getting. Because this is gold. It's not gold plus alloy. It's also a word that is used... To describe the quality of wine. And so if a merchant would say this wine is pure, it means it has been undiluted. It hasn't had anything else added to it. What you see is what you get. Alright? I love the visual. Alright? Here's the visual. It's like saying here is the goodness of 100% Welch's Pure grape juice, all right? The only thing added to this is absorbic acid for some reason and something else. Um, but it's, it's just to preserve it and make it not rot on you. Um, what he's saying is this. I want you to live pure and blameless lives in such a way that when people see you, they see who Christ really is, all right? They see full-on purple right here. What happens in our lives, though, when we don't live pure lives? We'll apply it to our speech because that's what Paul does here. Say we, we make a certain um, derogatory statement about someone else. Say we tell a, a lie to our parents. Say that we um, insult our brother or our sister. You can kind of fill in the blank. The more our speech becomes marked by grumbling and arguing, the less solid 
purple it looks. And if you were to taste this right now, it would not taste anything like this. This looks really good, actually. So, now, as a parent, sometimes I like to water this down so that my kids don't get too much sugar. But Paul does not want the Philippians to water their witness down for the sake of their speech. Do you get it? Alright, if you were to taste this, you'd probably be less than impressed. <coughs> Think about that image for a moment. Now, living a pure lifestyle means that in all things we devote ourselves to Christ so that our life can be sweeter and better and reflect God more accurately. Um, G. Walter Hansen summarizes this verse well. He says, to be a blameless Christian community means that no one can find the faults of griping and bickering in the words or tone of conversation in the community. He continues, to be a pure Christian community means that Christians do not mix their good words with negative complaints or specious arguments. Their speech is like good, undiluted wine. The Welch is 100% there. And then he says this. He says, when children of God are without fault, their conversations will not be marked by the blemishes of bitter criticism or angry quarrels. Now, if you were to ask someone whom you trust, whom you love, who loves you, to evaluate your speech and your conduct, what would they say? Would they say that it is blameless and pure? Would they say that you avoid quarrels and you avoid criticizing others? Where would they instruct you to grow in godliness? Perhaps that's a good conversation for you to have with spouse, friend, or a family member sometime this week. Now, Paul says, do all these things be pure and blameless. And then he says in verse 15, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation in which you shine like stars or as lights in the world, or stars in the sky. Now, these words come from Deuteronomy chapter 32. Uh, 32, 5 is where this prophet cross-references. And in Deuteronomy 32, God is extolled for greatness. It's another song that they sing. And Moses describes God as a rock. He, he describes him uh, as one whose actions are perfect and just. And then he contrasts the quality and the person of God with the Israelites who had acted corruptly toward him. Thus, they were a perverse and crooked generation. He, he's pointing out that crookedness and perverseness is a pattern in a way of life. And, and it's a pattern that is not consistent with who God is and what God does. Alright, so people look at our lives and if they see um, griping and complaining and arguing, it's confusing because that's really so out of line with the character of God. Now, Paul's command in verse 14 has a logical, practical effect. And th this verse describes a quality of living that culminates as shining like a light in the sky, or, or shining like a star in the world. 
Now, shining is a result of a way of living within a crooked, twisted, dark, godless generation. And it's interesting, the word shine here is actually a passive verb. It's, it's not an active verb. Meaning that as these believers engaged in hearing and obeying God's teaching through Paul, a certain kind of light would shine through them. A light that is not of their own creation. In John chapter 8, Jesus says this. He says, I am, it's one of the I am statements of Jesus, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. Now when we hear and we obey the word of God out of love for God, the result is a life that shines Godward. A life that lets God shine through you. In Matthew uh, chapter 5, Jesus is going to say on the Sermon on the Mount, He's going to say, You, speaking to His disciples, are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And He says, Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl, but instead they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And He says, In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds. Do you get the connection? Deeds are important. They may see your good deeds, but when they see your good deeds, they see God and they bring Him glory. And so, kids, you have some uh, glow sticks. And I want to ask you uh, this question How does your light shine? This light, let's see if I can break it, this light can be dim. By quarreling, by arguing, by grumbling, by complaining. This light can be dimmed, can be hidden. It's not that the light goes away because you have the light of Christ in you if you are in Christ. But it's that it becomes less and less visible to the world around you. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says this. I thought this was really helpful. It says, amid this moral blackness, the children of God should stand out as stars at midnight. It says, believers are possessors of Christ, the light of the world, and so are now light givers to the world. You shine states the present fact that they are not to be told to shine, but reminded that they already do. The challenge was to let the light shine out unhindered. A light well shown never brings glory to itself. It always shows God. As uh, my kids were playing with these last night, we had some at home, and um, they went into their, their uh, they would say, Dad, come here, I want to show you. So we went into their closet, framed in there, and they turned on, and you know what I saw? I didn't see their faces so much. I just saw this big glowing nightlight stick. It was like, how appropriate that I don't see my kids very much, but I see this light. Um, can we do something? Um, would you go ahead and dim the lights? Go ahead and dim the lights if you could. Kids, if you haven't cracked yours yet, I invite you to crack it now. And the question I want to ask is this. How do we want to shine as people at First Baptist Church? So, oh, I love it. I can see them. All right, so if you are five years and under, why don't you put them all down right now? If you're five years and under, would you raise your glow stick? 
Five numbers. All right. Fantastic. Fantastic. All right. How about um, eight and under? What's that? Six, seven, and eight-year-olds. All right. Awesome. What about nine and ten-year-olds? Do you have them? All right. Anybody over ten-year-old that happens to have a glow stick? All right. Anybody who wishes they had a glow stick and wants to raise their hand? <laughs> All right. Do you see? Thank you. You can come down. Uh, thank you. I see the light. Very good. Uh, do you see how, as more lights popped up, it's not that the room got brighter, but you became aware of the light shining nearby? So, young people, as you go to school this week, let your light shine. Let your light shine. Don't hinder the shining of your light. Let your light shine. Middle-aged people, meaning not middle-aged people, like uh, not young people, so 20s and up. Uh, you're not middle-aged, by the way, if you're 20. Um, <laughs> as you go to work or you go to school this week, let your light shine. You know, 30s and up, let your light shine. As you go to work and you do stuff with family and kids and whatever God has in your life, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s and up, wherever God has placed you, let your light shine unhindered. Alright? Let the light be a reminder that it's Christ who shines through you. But as we work out our salvation with, with fear and trembling, we trust that it is God who works in us. We have both practical action to be involved with and also dependence upon God's Spirit. Alright? Would you raise the lights before anyone falls asleep? <laughs> Question. How do you want to let your light shine at First Baptist Church? Shining. I mentioned uh, earlier the importance of a second person plural meaning Paul is speaking to the community. Shining is important for you and yourself. But to shine the light of Christ on the world it takes the community of faith. How will your light shine this week? Leading with this quote from the prayer. This quote is also by G. Walter Hansen, and he says, instead of being preoccupied with complaining, the church should be occupied with proclaiming the word of life. Complaining turns off the light of the church in the world. Proclaiming the word of life shines the light of the life of Christ through the darkness of the world. We live in what is very often a dark place. As we look around and we consider the events even of the last week with the shooting out in Las Vegas and all this kind of stuff, we recognize we live in a very dark place. How more important that your light shine that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Alright? We could continue on with the next section. I challenge you to read that. Uh, even as he goes into the next section talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus, he gives examples of the men who have let the light shine. Well, let's pray this morning. God, um, be the first to say, there are many moments in my life in which my light shines in a hindered manner. And yet, God, you still live in me, you still love me, and you still give me grace 
to let their light shine before men that they may see the good works that have come to effect because of your spirit. And God, many of us need help in, in the various moments of our life where it's really easy to complain. And God, we need the help of your spirit, but we need the help of each other too. Because sometimes when we're, when we're grumbling or complaining, all it takes is someone to speak a kind word to us and to lift us up and to show us that there is a better way. And so God, I ask that we would be people who not only speak well this week, but that we would be people who would encourage others to speak well for your glory. As we head into our Sunday school classes and our adult Bible classes and into our week and whatever you have for us, God, help us to rejoice in the Lord always. May our speech match the goodness of God in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Together we say, Amen. Alright, would you stand with me? May the love of God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding, which guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus, give you power and strength to hear and to obey the word of God this week as you go forth for wherever God has you. You're dismissed.